Hi everyone, welcome to Our New World, the podcast that explores little solutions to the world's big problems. Remember to get in touch at maxatmarbonline.org if you want to be a guest, if you want to hear about a particular topic, or even if you just want a message to be read out to the world. That's m-a-x at mahbonline.org. So this episode involves a lot of learning. I'm speaking with Rihanna Eisler. Rihanna's a wonderful person whose early life experiences in Nazi Germany and then Cuba has influenced her work in partnership studies and how those studies impact socioeconomic and environmental aspects of life. Her book, The Chalice and the Blade, challenges our conventional beliefs about society and her more recent book, The Real Wealth of Nations, has been hailed by Archbishop Desmond Tutu as a template for the better world we have been so urgently seeking. Some of the questions we discuss include how is environmental oppression linked to female oppression? What does it mean to be masculine and feminine? Have we always lived in societies full of gender imbalance? What is an alternative system to one based on domination? What will it take to change our society and how can we all be part of that? As you can hear, we cover a lot in this episode, and I'd actually love to hear your feedback on the content as well as questions for a potential follow-up conversation with Rianne. So whatever it is you may be doing, if it's cooking, walking, running, just chilling out, plug in, let me know what you think. Enjoy. Rianne, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It's great to have you on. It's a pleasure to be with you, Max. Firstly, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your work? How did you get into this kind of realm of, of domination and, and environmental work? Well, I, <laughs> the passion that I have for this work, uh, and I have a lot of passion for it, is actually uh, deeply rooted in my own life as a child refugee from Nazi Europe with my parents. And obviously, I, perhaps not obviously, but I was exposed to violence, to cruelty. Uh, crystal night, uh, but by a miracle, we were able to escape uh, to Cuba. I grew up in the industrial slums of Havana. Uh, there I experienced another form of cruelty, the enormous gaps between, at that time, in Cuba between those on top and those on bottom. Uh, to make a long story short, uh, these questions, of course, uh, led, I mean, what these experiences led to, and they were traumatic experiences, really, were questions. And it was precisely these questions of, does it have to be this way, uh, that led to my research, my multidisciplinary cross-cultural historical research. And it led to the identification of two cultural categories that are not yet uh, mainstream. One is the partnership system. The other one is the domination system. It's the partnership domination social scale. And these categories transcend conventional categories like right, left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, Northern, Southern. For one thing, uh, as I started my research, none of these categories answer that question of, is there an alternative? Because 
There have been regressive, repressive, oppressive regimes in every one of our conventional categories. But for another, and this is critical, uh, these conventional categories, like most of our studies of society to this day, uh, really either marginalize or ignore the majority of humanity, women and children. And that is a huge hole in how we have become accustomed to looking at human possibilities at our past, our present, and as I said, the possibilities for our future, which today so many people are becoming aware. Uh, hey, uh, the old domination traditions at our level of technology uh, could take us to an evolutionary dead end, uh, climate change, weaponry, you name it. It's dysfunctional. Mm. And these domination systems, let's delve into to those because I think you, you say it to people and it makes sense. It clicks with people when they say, yes, there is oppression everywhere we look. But what, how has it kind of shaped our history and where does it come from? Because has it, has it always been like that? No, it has not always been like that. And we have been told false stories. I mean, think of the caveman cartoon, right? Mm -hmm. And what, he's got a club in one hand, a weapon. With the other hand, he's dragging a woman by the hair. We show this powerful image to children before, as we today know from neuroscience, mm. their brains, much less their critical faculties, are formed. And what's the message? It's always been that way by implication. That's how it is it's called human nature. Yeah. The reality is quite different. And uh, a part of my research has been uh, a different story of our past. In my most recent book, uh, Nurturing Our Humanity, that came out with Oxford University Press in 2019, I not only draw from a lot of uh, studies from neuroscience, but I, I, I had been working on, it takes me a long time to write my books. I'd been doing research for this book for seven years. And then I invited my co-author, Douglas Fry, the anthropologist Douglas Fry, uh, for one, uh, one of the reasons that I invited him to be a co-author is because he is probably one of the world's leading authorities on how we humans lived for millennia, millions of years in foraging times. Uh, and he calls these the original partnership societies. They were more egalitarian, much more gender balanced, far less violence. We know now from archeology, span anthropology, uh, DNA studies, uh, linguistics, that warfare, warfare, which we're often told, well, that's just human nature, is at most five to 10,000 years old, a drop in the evolutionary bucket. Mm. So what's changed? Because it's so interesting. Um, I want to talk a bit about your 
uh, what's the word, your comparison, I guess, to, to bonobos and orcas and those kind of um, matriarchal but peaceful, generally, societies in nature. And that's kind of what you see, I think, with with humans is you think, okay, well, they're, they're much like chimps, like they focus on alphas, betas, domination, and, and that's evolutionary, you know, it's biological to think that way. But what has changed? Because if it wasn't like that before, it's interesting well, that, it, that it turned that way. Well, first of all, by focusing on the chimps, which are not a completely domination-oriented species, but have a lot of the characteristics of the domination system, they are a top-down hierarchies of domination mm. rather than of actualization, right? Empowering, that's a hierarchy of actualization. We need new language mm. to make distinctions. They're certainly male-dominated, and we have discovered that, yes, they are warlike, but there's another species called bonobos, which I think you're familiar with, mm. uh, which have, in terms of DNA, the same relationship to us humans as the chimps do. But surprise, right? Because they don't fit into the old story of human nature. We're just beginning to hear a little bit about the bonobos. But the mythology persists, even though they're both cousins and at best, you know, uh, they're not direct descendants by any means. I mean, we're not direct descendants from either bonobos or uh, chimps. Which is important, yeah, because yeah. I think people assume we are, but yeah, it's yeah, important to recognize. Yeah. And yet the focus has remained on the chimp. Why? Because that species uh, lends itself to the prevailing story, caveman cartoon again, mm -hmm. you know? And, and I have to say something, um, you know, there is a study, for example, of baboons that you may be familiar with. Sapolsky did that study, studying baboons, showing, showing that even baboons can, I mean, they're very, very bellicose, yeah. you know, and they're certainly not ancestors, okay? They're someplace in the, you know, primate chain, yeah. okay? But even baboons can change their culture radically, radically, and with it, with it, because they measured this, the their brain neurochemistry, they can become more partnership oriented. And that change can last even after the original ones. I mean, I don't want to tell the whole story. But, yeah, sure, yeah. But it's, it's, it, it, it's in nurturing our humanity. Yeah. It's all over the place. But these stories are not... We have to start really telling a different story of human nature. Yeah. And that is part of what my body of work tells. Starting with the first book, uh, drawing from this multidisciplinary, cross-cultural, historical, and prehistorical research, uh, the chalice and the blade. Yeah, yeah. So I was going to ask about the chalice and the blade, and then come to the latest book. Uh, I, I mean, it's it's. I feel like it's too big to say. Tell us about the chalice and the blade. But <laughs> um, but there are some really lovely um, points in it that I think kind of like you said, it kind of transcends gender, and it talks much more about this the sort of the necessity to dominate and how that wasn't always the case, but why it's sort of developed 
and I, I don't want to put words into your book, but why it's developed, why we've developed into the society we have, um, and how it's kind of led to particularly the female oppression, which you link a bit to, or you link totally, again, I don't want to put words into, but with environmental oppression and how those two things link together. Well, they, they're completely linked. I yeah. mean, we speak of other Earths, right? Yes. I mean, the, the, the Earth is an object to be dominated, to be exploited in the old mythology, you know, the conquest of nature, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we have inherited that. Uh, but I, I, we can talk about that a little later. The Challenge in the Blade, by the way, is now in its 57th US printing and in about almost 30 foreign editions. Uh, so, and it came out in 87. 87, yeah, a lot of, a lot of poppy sold. It's an evergreen because it is still completely relevant. Yeah. I mean, a lot of young people are rediscovering it. And I love that uh, because I love it when I get, a, I got a call the other day from a young man who wanted to give his girlfriend a present of love you know valentine's or whatever yeah yeah and he wanted to know if i would talk to her because the chalice and the blade changed her life and also his life. oh wow that is brilliant <laughs> yes but what you wanted to know what it's about <laughs> well sorry i mean yes i did but it is but it is again i didn't want to say speak for you but it feels like a, a summary of kind of the the domination and the partnership models it's really the, the two models time that I introduced this configuration. Yeah. And yes, uh, we don't think of gender, roles and relations as being anything except, quote, women's issues, right? Mm. I mean, there's some place over here, out of the picture. Mm. The really important things is social justice, uh, environmental balance, uh, but the reality is that we have, from domination times, inherited a gendered system of values. Mm. Uh, I write about that in a later book, The Real Wealth of Nations. And yes, it is a kind of a riff on Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, yeah. um, where I introduce the concept of a caring economics of partnerism. Why? Because for neither, and I'm not telling you about the Charles and the Blade now, but mm -hmm. I've, since I'm on the roll on this, I'll tell you about Please this. Please do, okay? absolutely. Um, for both Smith, the father, quote, of capitalism, and for Marx, the father of, quote, socialism, nature was just there to be exploited. There is nothing uh, there about caring for nature. Yeah. As for caring for people, starting at birth, for both of them, that was just reproductive rather than productive yeah. work. And it was to be in their time, even when Marx wrote, to be performed for free by a woman in a male-controlled household. You know, part of my background is not only system science and social science, but law. And, you know, I think the law tells us a lot about the norms, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. When Marx wrote, a woman could not sue for injuries inflicted on her. Only her husband could for mm. loss of her services. So 
No wonder the work was invisible. No wonder we're just beginning today. I introduced uh, in 2007, when The Real Wealth of Nations was published, the concept of a caring economics. And at the time, people said to me, caring and economics, you know, putting them in the same sentence was a big deal already. Yeah. Today, we are hearing it's been co-opted to just mean the care economy. And yes, that's important. But really, the question for us as a species and for a planet is, what do we value? What do we reward? Yeah. And if we don't value and reward caring for people starting at birth and caring for to keep a clean and healthy environment, you know, it used to be a home environment, now it's a planetary environment, right? Yeah. This so-called women's soft, women's work, so there's always enough money. I mean, gender, I said, is something that runs through this hidden system of gendered values. Yeah. So somehow there's always enough money for prisons, right? Well, who's that? That's the punitive male head of household mm. of domination systems for weapons and wars. That's the hero as warrior, as killer. But somehow there isn't enough money for health care for child care, yeah. for environmental care. I mean, think about it. This is a gendered system of values. has nothing to do with individual women and men uh, in the sense that I'm married to a very caring man and there are women who are not caring. Mm. Uh, that's not the point. The point is our system of rewards and values and how that has informed our economic system as well as our belief system so we're really talking about whole systems change and you can't get that without really looking at how roles and relations are structured in terms of gender which is really what the chalice and the blade focuses on and if we fast forward now uh to my latest book but there's a lot in between <laughs> uh we are talking also of childhood yeah we know and you know this as a I, science as teacher. A teacher this is where i'm very interested in it yeah yeah i mean what do we know we know that we our brains are not we're not born with fully formed brains i mean it's that simple they develop in interaction with our environments which for humans is mostly cultural and to say right left religious secular eastern western is fragmenting you know colleague of mine calls them weapons of mass distraction, these categories. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Fragment, they fragment our consciousness. Domination system takes into account the structure of both the family and the economics and the politics. Do, do you see where I'm going? I see, that? yeah. And I'd like to ask later, actually, I'd like to ask about the entry into kind of a new system away from capitalism, communism, that I know you've talked about um, in other uh, in other interviews. I think something I really, really love that you talk about is changing of the language. Because as a teacher, I, I have to, I'm in a constant reflective state of what I tell kids. And it's not, you know, the words that come out of my mouth are very important. And I think gendering traits is one of the biggest issues that children face because you grow up, you know, I grew up as a, I, I played rugby, I did all this. And 
you don't need a, a backstory to my life, but it's you hear all these things about, you know, don't be a girl and don't do this. And I think young women grow up and they don't want to seem too masculine. And so assertiveness is discouraged in women and, you know, emotions are, are treated as feminine. And it's just weird because emotions are just as masculine as they are feminine. Assertiveness is just as feminine as they are masculine. Absolutely. And, and but you know something, Max, actually men do get in conventional dominator classifications of masculinity they do they do get two emotions anger and contempt yes yeah but the quote soft emotions you know empathy caring, yeah. and 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 really i wrote a book on sexuality and spirituality which i think you'd love called sacred pleasure sacred pleasure which in itself is like what but uh one of the people I quote um, is in, in the field of men's studies. And he points out that, as you just pointed out, that men are socialized in a negative way, not to be like a woman. Mm. Yeah. That's strange. Very. And, and their mothers are women. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's also, so, I think, no. sorry. No, I mean, it's it's crazy making. Yeah, but it's it's also, I mean, what I see, I taught at an all-girls school for a while, and what I saw was a lot of encouragements to kind of be more like a man. And like, you know, okay, well, you want to dominate, you want to take control of your life, be more like a man. And you're thinking like, no, because men, all, whilst I, I love men, I am a man, previously, that's not the model that we're looking for now. We don't want strong young women to grow up thinking I can do what men can do you want them thinking okay let's do this differently like and obviously there's context behind it and you need to put in the the notion that they can do really have to I think step back and look at our the definitions of both femininity and Mm. masculinity that we've inherited from times that oriented more rigidly to the domination side, okay? Yeah. And they deprive both women and men of their full humanity. Mm-hmm. You said it so well, Max. I mean, if a woman is assertive, she's a ball breaker, she's a bitch. If a man is assertive, oh boy, you know, aggression for men, wow. Mm. I mean, this is, but, but if a man is soft, caring, sensitive, you know, women will call him a wimp, a sissy. I mean, women who are socialized. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this this is why I say this is nothing really to do with being a woman or being a man. Uh, it has to do with how have how much are we... It's like waking up from the domination trance, yeah. okay? I mean, that, and once we wake up, we begin to wake up then we see all kinds of possibilities, not only for ourselves individually, but for humanity. And that's what this work is about. Yeah. One last question on the gender thing, and then I'll move on. Do you think that they are terms to stop using in that case? Because I think whilst I have certain beliefs around it, I understand that there are differences between men and women that does not mean that they should be treated differently or learned differently necessarily, but is feminine and masculine, are they outdated terms? No, uh, unfortunately, we need to redefine them. Okay. Because if we just leave them behind, the hidden system of gendered values won't go away. Mm. 
we have to unpack them first, recognize that we have had a system in which masculinity, not only fathers, you know, like patriarchy. I mean, if, you know, when we talk about language, we can take it back to our language, which is crazy. But really, if we don't recognize that this is deep in our socialization as children, as both girls and boys and everyone in between, uh, then we can't change it. So for now, I would strongly advocate not leaving behind, not stopping to use masculine and feminine, but identifying the fact that, hey, we're talking about human traits, human possibilities mm. that have been falsely labeled masculine or feminine. I mean, uh, for example, uh, anthropological studies of show one study that I'm thinking by a man called Coltrane, uh, he, he studied two tribes and one man took a, in, in Africa, took a very leading role in caring for children. It was a more peaceful society yeah. all around. Uh, we're talking about all the young men and older men too, who are diapering babies, feeding babies, you know, doing this women's work. Oh my God. You know, that is very important. That is a partnership trend just as much as women entering positions of leadership. Yeah is a very important partnership trend. So gender is not just a women's issue. It is a leading social and economic issue. And we showed that uh, in back in 1995, the Center for Partnership Systems, then was called the Center for Partnership Studies, did a study of statistical data from 89 nations and we found that the status of women is a powerful predictor of general quality of life. Mm. And it isn't just that, yeah, you know, women have the population a little bit more, you know, that is going to have an effect, right? But it is that as the status of women rises, so also does the value accorded to the stereotypically feminine, like caring, caregiving, nonviolence. And we see that, by the way, I'll do a very fast forward. Yeah. In uh, Northern European nations that are always on the top, I mean, Finland. Norway, Norway yeah, the Scandinavians, yeah. yeah uh, of the top of the, not only the global happiness reports, which is really weird because they live in darkness, you know, which we know leads to depression, right? Yeah. But still, they're the happiest nations. Yeah. Uh, but also the World Economic Forum's global competitiveness reports, they're not socialist, quite the contrary, precisely because they have more caring policies, but, you know, universal health care, child care, very well trained and paid, uh, very generous paid parentally for both mothers and fathers. Yeah. Uh, they have invested in their human infrastructure. 
and, and of course, President Biden is trying to invest in the human infrastructure and getting a lot of flack saying that's not infrastructure. That's the most important infrastructure for the post-industrial age, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm in education, so this rings true for me. Do you think that that's... Oh, sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, but it is true. Yeah. Even economists who are trained into reproductive and productive and you know, forget about women and and nobody talks about gender. Uh, Nobody talks about studies showing that if the care were performed in families were counted, there was a recent Australian study showing that if this work, which is still mostly performed by women, were counted, it would be 50%, 5-0% of the Australian GDP. But even economists keep telling us that the most important capital for our post-industrial age is what they like to call high-quality human capital. Well, that's the human infrastructure. Right. But not not GDP, you mean? Oh, God, GDP is a mess. Well, that's, I mean, GDP is a mess, but that's what I was going to ask you about. It's not GDP, but it's all the chat about different, um, particularly economic frameworks that I think everyone at the moment is saying, right, well, GDP is essentially failing us. Like it's done a job. It's not going to continue doing a job. So how is it that we kind of move into something other than GDP focused capitalism or a communist society that probably won't work? How is it that we move away from those two frameworks that is the only ones that really people know outside of economics? But these are these are both rooted in domination thinking. What What is the dictatorship of the proletariat, please? Say again. Um, what is the dictatorship of the proletariat if it isn't domination model? Yeah. And and really what you had in, in what you have in China, what, what you had in the former Soviet Union was state capitalism. State yeah. From the top down. Uh, it, 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 we, we have been just told such strange stories. And that's why this partnership domination scale is so useful, because there is clarity about what happened, where we are, and where we can be. So where can we be, I guess, is the big question. Like, if on the scale, because it does sound useful, and in order to go from, and we are in, the reality is we are in hierarchical systems. So how do we move out? And we're going to always, I think, sorry, my opinion is that we are probably going to always have someone ahead of state. But presumably it means more um, emphasis on people below the head of state, more democratic. Let me make three points. One, um, that's why we need new language. I've coined the terms hierarchies of actualization, which we have in, look, every society needs parents, needs teachers, needs managers, needs leaders. But the question is, in a hierarchy of domination, accountability, respect, benefit just flows from the bottom up. In a hierarchy of actualization, it flows both ways. Power is used to empower rather than to disempower. Yeah. We haven't had the language. So uh, this isn't a question of doing away, just having it be a completely flat organization. It is not in a complex world, it is not functional, but it is about, you know, the chalice and the blade, they're two symbols of power, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, the blade is the power to dominate, to control, 
to take life. The chalice is the power to give life, to nurture life, to illuminate life. And so in the ancient iconography, as part of the sacred art, you have images of a woman, a goddess giving birth. To us, that's insane. I mean, birth, I mean, that's, you couldn't be pregnant and teach school, lest children see this thing, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, we have really been brainwashed. So that's the first point I wanted to make. The second point is there is a correlation between uh, how many women you have in leadership and the rise of the so-called feminine value of caring, caregiving, and nonviolence. In these Northern European nations, which as I said, are not socialist, women are 40 to 50% of the national legislature. Mm. But it isn't just women who voted for these policies, it's men. Because as the status of women rises, men, no longer find it sort of such a threat to their status, to their, quote, masculinity, to also embrace more caring, caregiving, nonviolence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the irony is, just on the second point, the irony is, obviously, it's due to who I've managed, who I'm lucky enough to have as friends. I know plenty of men who very much would like to, I think, care for children and take on those roles and and it's nice to see but I'm, I'm not saying that it, it happens everywhere um but i just think i agree in that it seems that men actually quite embrace those roles sometimes when given those those i mean options and challenges you know that we get endorphins neurochemical rewards of pleasure not only when we're cared for but when we care for another uh, whether it's a child, a lover, a friend, a pet. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and really uh, depriving men of that part of their humanity is part of what the domination rigid. You can't rank one type of person over yeah. another type of person without stereotypes. Yeah. That's why you have such rigid, you know, there was a study of people who voted for Trump. Two, two studies that are very relevant and really confirm the findings from the that the same findings that revealed the partnership domination social scale. One study, uh, a lot of these people, the one thing that they hated was a quote uppity woman. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm talking mean, about wording. Who stepped out of her gendered definition of role. She can manipulate, but she can't assert. The second thing, and this was a recently, I just found out about it, or I would have put it in Nurturing Our Humanity um, as well, uh, with other studies, uh, they found that one thing, another thing that the people who voted for Trump had in common was very uh, rigid views on parenting. Interesting. Uh, punitive views, yeah. you know, control, want the child to respect. Well, I mean, that, that really translates in domination systems into fear. Yes, right? yes, absolutely. Uh, because respect has to go both ways. Yeah. 
And that's what we're learning now today. I mean, even the American Psychological Association finally came out with a statement saying, gee, spanking is not only ineffective as, as a method of discipline because kids really act out. Yes. <laughs> and then they have trouble learning and all kinds of problems, but it is harmful both physically and psychologically. Yeah. And yet you ask people worldwide, I've done a lot of work on the human rights of women and children. And it really has to be, I mean, we have the data now, thanks to women's and children's organizations, by the way. Yeah. Only because they said, wait a minute, we've got to look at this pandemic of violence globally against women and children of both genders. Yeah. Uh, if, if we don't change this view of how, how I mean, people who, who are taught that it's okay to use violence to impose your will on a small child or on a woman because that's what, I mean, how, how do you expect them to really not use violence to in war? I'm no, and, and anger. I mean, this is the thing is that everyone thinks that we're angry or says, oh, don't be so angry. But of course, you know, there's violence happening. There's... Yeah, I mean, and, and there's denial, denial, and in group versus out group thinking. So you scapegoat. You you can't. I mean, you as a child, you are dependent for life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. On the people who are causing you pain, you're not gonna. You have to go into denial. They tell you that it's oh, your problems are the fault of the Jews or of the blacks or of the Shia or vice versa of the Sunnis. That's what you're gonna do. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah, I interrupted just as you were going to go into your third point. I'm sorry, but uh, if you remember your third point, let's just go on. okay. All right, it, I could talk about this forever. Sorry, I should be getting like into interview mode, but this is so interesting. Um, but we as, can talk. We can do another interview. That would we be great. A follow up. Yeah. Big pleasure. We can do an interview on the social wealth economy. Let me close here with the social wealth economic yes so i would like that to happen and then i would just like one more thing which is all we always do like a what would you recommend that everyday people can do to make the world a better place and that's the last question yeah but please yeah the social wealth economic indicators uh we uh you know gdp not only includes activities i mean we can talk forever about the problems with gdp but there are two salient problems. One, what's considered productive often harms and takes life. You know, selling cigarettes or unhealthy fast foods and the resulting medical costs and funeral costs are great for GDP. Uh, in terms of the environment, <laughs> you don't find an old stand of trees uh, in the GDP until it's dead, mm. until it's chopped down. Yeah. But not only uh, it, it, does it have negatives in as positives, as productive, it fails to include as productive work, the work of the three life-sustaining economic sectors, the natural economy, the volunteer community economy, and the household economy. And this is so fundamental. 
I mean, I, I, I cannot emphasize it enough. We've been, both capitalism and socialism are based on a flawed notion of what is economically valuable, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's big. <laughs> so one of the things that we at the Center for Partnership Systems uh, are doing is developing a social wealth index okay. that will show I mean, first of all, it takes into account findings from neuroscience that we better think of our investment in childhood, right. in family, because if we don't, it, it's reality stood on its head, you know, Yeah. especially in our post-industrial age. Um, but it shows the economic value of caring for people starting at birth and caring for our natural life support systems. Mm. And this is the kind of metric that has been so sorely lacking. There is a very healthy movement towards quality of life indicators, but what they fail to, first of all, they they fail to focus on women and children, which is the majority of humanity, which is a pretty big lacunae. Aside from that. But but they also really don't look at what investments make for better outcomes. In other words, they just look at the outcomes rather than at the inputs. And the social wealth economic indicators, which we launched in 2000, and I guess it was 14, yeah, 2014, with a grant from the Kellogg Foundation, there were 20 four of them and that's a lot of indicators yeah so now we're updating them uh we we are condensing them and when i say we we have a fabulous team of economists associated with the united nations with harvard etc working on this and i think that it is not only essential for policymakers, but as an educational uh tool to help people transition into an economy where of course we have markets we have businesses and of course we have government policies but they give value and visibility and reward to this most fundamental human work of caring for people starting at birth and caring for our natural life support systems. Yeah, I can only think, I because it sounds brilliant, but I can only relate it to things that I've heard of in the past, like ecosystem services, which may well be completely different, but it's obviously trying to value something that has previously not had monetary value. Right. Is it kind of that concept? It is that concept. I believe that you have to start with where people are. And if the people who control the resources are looking at what is going to be economically effective, let's show them that actually caring for people starting at birth and caring for nature is economically effective. And let's have a different economic system because otherwise we're just trying to paste on add-ons to a fundamentally crazy system. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, when everyone's talking about systems change, that seems like a really important thing to to be talking about rather than just, like you said, adding on to something that we've been trying to do and seems to be not getting us nowhere, but maybe taking us in the wrong direction. 
Well, it, the problem is that, as we saw during the Trump years, and I don't mean to pick on Mr. Trump, but add-ons can be peeled off with a stroke of a pen. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 true. It's true. Uh, right. So, just kind of weaving to an end, um, I wanted to ask the call to action. So, we're going to ask what what people can do, what everyday people can do. You might feel a bit detached from this because it seems quite high level systems thinking. No, no, no. This is something that every one of us has to be involved in. Changing our story, changing our language, uh, educating ourselves first, raising our consciousness, changing our consciousness. I wrote a whole book on that called The Power of Partnership, showing that changes of consciousness are what lead to actions, which in turn lead to further changes of consciousness and the system changes because we hear so much about healing ourselves. But as a high school student wrote me after she read my work, she said, I go to this progressive school and we're constantly protesting against this and that and you know the environment yeah. and place. And I realized we're protesting against the same thing, traditions of domination. That's a very cool thing to get from a high school student. Yes, it was. I'm going to encourage some of mine to write some things like that. Yeah. <laughs> but okay, so but how do we get there? Because that's, again, that's a massive question. But what is something that people can do to get to that point of kind of raised consciousness? Because it seems like a, a difficult thing to kind of get your head around. But there are obviously, we're all capable of doing these things. And it just takes little steps, right? Look, I think we do whatever is within our sphere of influence. If you are an owner of a business, a manager of a business, uh, you either lobby for government policies that care for people, Mm -hmm. starting at birth, or you institute them. If you are a parent, you acquaint yourself with some of the new, not so new, but very important shift of pediatricians in talking about authoritative, because kids need limits, rather than authoritarian and violent methods of parenting. We have, by the way, a caring and connected parenting guide on our website, centerforpartnership.org in both English and Spanish that you can download for free. That's it's brilliant. Based, it's based on the latest neuroscience. Centerforpartnership.org. I'll, I'll share the link as well, centerforpartnership.org. And, 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 and in between those are a zillion things you can do. But the first step really is changing our own consciousness that there is a partnership alternative. Stop arguing about capitalism versus socialism, for goodness sakes. If the pandemic showed anything, is that we need both government policies and businesses. But the question is, what are they guided by caring values or uncaring values? The soft, stereotypically feminine, or the hard, stereotypically masculine, which does a disservice to human beings of both genders.